Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Putting It Together 263. And it's just me today. I thought it was about time we had a wee, what would you call it? A wee levelling session to have a chat, see how we're all doing, to tell you what's happening, and to just have a wee... Have a wee think, I suppose, and a wee um, ponder about what's going on in the world, arts-wise. Um, and yes, you know that sometimes I like to do this, and what it does is it helps me to sort of process where I am. And I'm hoping it'll do that today, because I'm in a sort of a strange wee moment. Um, but an enjoyable one, nonetheless. Um so, there's a few little things that I've noted down that I might like to talk about, but we'll see what happens. Um, of course, as soon as I hit record, the the bin uh, people came to start moving bins and collecting them and making a racket, so you might hear that. But I've got uh, I've got duvets all around the place because I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm working still on the soundproofing of this room. So, I hope it sounds good. Working on it. Um, how are you? I hope you're well. Uh, I've just been to see this week's Play Pie in a Pint, which is Not Now by David Ireland. And it starred Martin Quinn and Harry Ward and was directed by Becky Hope Palmer. And it was really top class. I always liked David's writing. Um, I really value Becky as a director. And um, what can I say about the, the, the cast? I mean, terrific, really great performances. Kind of perfect, perfect roles for these people. Um and great writing, just great writing. So, thoroughly enjoyed that, and um, it's the kind of thing that I like, and sometimes I forget, or you see, you kind of have to see something that you like to be reminded, oh yeah, that's the that's the thing. Sometimes I can't put it into words, I suppose. What is it I like to see? But I really like to see that, and what it was, was two complex, flawed characters button up against each other, in a very everyday sort of a situation um, and pointing out the absurdities of life um, and also you know uh, being relatable to me in the sense that they're having they're struggling with stuff things emotional things um, artistic things even and yeah I that's kind of my wheelhouse I think with plays at the moment anyway I like I like simple little two-handers with you know a, a good story, but more importantly, a kind of a an interesting uh, interaction between characters and and conflict, of course. Um, but to watch great actors do you know say great lines is just it's a total pleasure, and it's one of the things I love the most in the world. And that's what that was. It was it was two great actors um, delivering a great script. And what's not to love about that, you know? So, um, I've been pondering a few things other than that. Um, obviously, it's hard to not notice the, the furore that's gone on about ticket prices in the West End. Um, I was looking at an article here in the um, in the Independent. Of course, every pop-up that's ever existed is now on my screen. Uh, oh, for goodness sake. But yeah, um, apparently, the, the tickets for Cock topped out at four... It was over 400, 460 or something. That can't be right, is it? Yeah, 460. That was the max that it got to. Um, 60 pounds. Oh, yeah, so 400 plus 60 pounds in processing fees. Um, 
As recent as 2009, this article says, the average West End ticket price was £52. That was the average. That's remarkable, really, when you think of the difference. Um, but yeah, what is it, what is it about? Um, I mean, it's about it's about big names, isn't it? Um, and demand. Um, and it's also about this dynamic ticket pricing model. I'm, I'm assuming that's what's going on here. This thing of the fewer tickets that are available, um, the higher the price goes. So, I mean, I'm not going to dig into anything that people haven't said already, but the question, the biggest question we come away from it, for me, with is, who is it for? Who, like, what... What is theatre supposed to be doing and, and is it if ticket prices are up in hundreds in the hundreds of pounds, is it doing what it's set out to do and who is it doing that for? What's the point? Um none of us can afford that. Um even someone with, you know, a pretty good city of London job or whatever or a job in the city, um would surely not have four hundred and odd pounds disposable income to spend on a ticket to see a play um and you know the other question is is that i mean it's profiteering isn't it it's not it's not because the show needs to take that to cover its costs there's no way there's no way it probably made back its investment very quickly because it opened with a big name in the title role or in the the lead role so charging crazy amounts for tickets is not it's not to try and cover a cost or recoup an investment it's it's just to make more money because someone can. Um, it's shameful, you know, and um, I don't doubt there's a lot of money going to those names. But, and and I don't, I don't disagree with um, people doing their best deal that they can, you know, as actors. Um, if, you're, if your name is going to sell tickets, then I think you're certainly within your right to, um, you know, want to see some of that return. Because we're trying to make a living, um, but if that if if the if the premise is that the there's a name leading the production, then shouldn't the budget of the production be laid out so that those uh, wages are spoken for, covered, um, taken care of, without resorting to this racketeering business or profiteering business, which is a racket? Um, yeah, it just seems. Seems odd to me. And I, f I kind of feel on a moralistic level that in in the times that we live in, or in any times, I don't really think there's an excuse for just ripping people off because because you can. I, I, don't, I don't know how anyone can live with themselves for, you know, when they do that. Um, I believe in people being paid and properly paid for the time they put into something and not just the time but um the unique skill you know it was like um what was the thing about the whole gig economy thing with our business you know someone said i think it was a wedding band or one of these types of things that goes around you know i can't believe you charge a thousand pounds for a gig or whatever it is and the person the artist responds and says well i don't charge a thousand pound for two hours what you're paying for is 25 years. 
because I am not overnight suddenly able to do this. I've worked and worked and worked to get to that point where I'm able to do what I can do for you. What you can't do, what I can and what you need me to do, right? Um, you know, it's like the old story of, of, of the plumber. The plumber comes in and he may, he or she may kneel down at the at the sink or whatever and turn one little washer, you know, 20 degrees and fix your problem in 10 seconds. Is that plumber only worth 10 seconds worth of, you know, the hourly rate? Or is the plumber worth what the job being done is worth to you? Because the plumber knows how to fix it and you don't. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's not an exact comparison with with artistic endeavours, but what you're paying for is not someone's minute-by-minute minute time as much as you're paying for what do they bring. And I suppose that's an argument for people being paid well and in some cases, you know, very high high wages. But that shouldn't be reflected in um, a ticket price that is, you know, it's unreasonable, isn't it? It's not even, there's no, there's nowhere that that makes any sense, except in, to in lining pockets. Um, and I tell you whose pockets it isn't lining, is the people and the, you know, the jobbing actors in the smaller parts, and I'm not just talking about cock, because I know it's not a big uh, cast, um, it's not being reflected in the wages of the stage management, the wardrobe, um, you know, the people who are operating the lights and the sound, all these different things. I, I suspect that's not where... Uh, <laughs> I know that's not where the money's going. Some of it might be going to the top uh, names in the show, if you like. But it's not being, you know, spread around. The uh, the wealth is not being shared. <laughs> and, you know, as ever, we can zoom out from the question as it relates to art and, and ask the question in a bigger sense, can't we? Um when there's large lots of money, let's say, in this country um, or in the world, is it being spread out evenly or according to need? No, of course it's not. Uh, and then we get to the argument of, um, well, if you know, the harder you work, the more you can make. If you work really hard, <laughs> then then you too can be a billionaire. Nobody can work hard enough to become a billionaire. There aren't enough hours. There's no way for someone fairly to become a billionaire. Um, and there's also no need for anyone to be a billionaire. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just my opinion, as you know. Um, not what I was intended to talk about. But, yeah, the argument of, um, you know, putting the hours and the rewards are there, it's just not... It just doesn't hold up. Um it doesn't take into account, by the way, I can hear, there's no road work going on outside this studio. Unbelievable. It doesn't take into account privilege either. Huge privilege in the case of many people um, who have, as opposed to those who have not. Privilege of all kinds, of, of race, of gender, um, of sexual orientation, of place of birth, uh, family connections, schooling, education, you know. And that's just a few of them. And I speak from an understanding of being in a position of privilege. I mean, I'm privileged just to be able to sit down at this mic and talk to you for so many reasons. I mean, one of them is even just having a voice that people um, 
listen to is is highly dependent on many of my privileges. Um, but on a more simple level, um, I have a I have a, a room to spare in my house that I can dedicate to this. That in itself is huge privilege, especially now. Um, that's not all uh, hard work. Some of that's just stuff that's landed in my lap because of accidents of birth and all that different stuff. I'm really aware of it and I carry it around. I'm not looking for sympathy. Um, but I think if, if you know, privilege plays a part in our lives, which it does for all of us, whether that be positively or negatively, we, ha- we have a responsibility to acknowledge it and be aware of it, to hold it in some way. Um, and things like shameless, you know, hiking of prices just because you can uh, is is at the opposite end of that. It goes against everything that th- that type of thought process would stand for, if that makes sense to anybody. Um, so it makes me sad. It makes me sad because, you know, at the moment I'm doing a play called Thread, which I've told you about and you've probably seen on social media and stuff, which is about Paisley, a small post-industrial town outside Glasgow, I think it's fair to call it that. Um and it's in a public setting, it's in a town hall in Renfrew, which is near Paisley, and people of that town are coming to see it. Um and or people of Paisley are people who have direct experience of, of the type of world that this story comes from. Um and that seems to me to be much closer to what I'm trying to achieve with art than somebody in the West End needlessly charging £400 for a ticket for a play. Um, And I always look around audiences, especially, well, actually, whether I'm in them or whether I'm performing for them, I always look around and and I, I try and get a read on who's here, what type of people are here. Not that you can always judge just by looking someone you you shouldn't but um you know you can get you can certainly get an idea sometimes can't you who's who's turned up who feels comfortable in this space who's allowed or feels allowed to be here who can afford to be here um and yeah and why are they here you know um and i think it's much more interesting to me to see or to hear from the people who live in these towns, Paisley, Renfrew in this example, who've come to see this play, than it is for me to hear from, you know, the hobnobbing of, of the industry people who've who've driven or taxied out to see it. It's lovely to have industry people there. Um, but, but that's not what it's for, is it? Um, I remember doing the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui at, at um, Dundee Rep and we did a community tour and I was always amazed by how willing people were to show up at a village hall and see a play whose even title to me it could I think could be off putting it sounds hoity toity you know it sounds like it's some sort of intellectual exercise it's by some German guy that you've never heard of um and it's about gangsters and then in the end it's about Nazis and I never heard anyone say even oh, oh I didn't know what to expect and that took me by surprise or anything like that. People just sort of sort of showed up and just went with the flow. Um, a lot of that's down to Dundee Rep having done community tours for years, you know, um, so that people know that annually 
something from the rep comes round and they just go and see it, presumably. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them weren't what we would class as theatre crowd. Um, but they, show, they showed up and uh, it's it's a sort of a willingness to take things at face value. Not necessarily, just the, not the meaning of the play as such, but like the situation, just going, okay, all right, so so you're doing, you're dressed up as gangsters and you're blah, 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 you know, fake moustaches and funny haircuts and this play is just not, um, well, it's not a kitchen sink drama, is it? It's not, uh, a, it's not like a mirror, a direct mirror that we're holding up to you in the sense that, I don't know, a soap opera is or whatever. I don't, I'm, listen, I'm not making a massive intellectual point here or making great sense of it but you know what i mean um it comes from another world it seems to be from somewhere else and maybe it seems to be for someone else i don't know but people's willingness just to sit um and take part um to listen and see how it chimed with them maybe they went away and said that was a lot of shit i don't know um but people were seemed to be engaged that's just one example um and that was always more interesting to me um than some of the theatre audiences I looked around that I'm part of, and I think, who are we, you know, and what, and is this for us? And should it be for, shouldn't it be for everyone else as well? The other thing, of course, is that some people don't want to go to the theatre, and they're well within their rights. It's like Fran Lebowitz talked about reading. She said, "There's, there's not like a moral um, judgment on whether or not you read books. It's just a taste, isn't it? Some people like to read books." Some people like to do puzzles. Some people like to go on TikTok. You know, I don't like going up Munro's, but it seems like everybody and their granny's up and down Munro's every 20 minutes. Good luck to them. Um, you know, reading's a taste. Theatre's a taste as well. I got in a taxi the other night. I was talking to the driver and it came up, you know, I'm an actor and things. And she said, well, wait to hear this. You won't believe this. She said, I've never, ever been to a play. And I said, all right, okay. She said, I've never even been to a pantomime. Um, and I said, all right. She said, I don't think I've ever been in a theatre. I said, wow, that's so interesting. And it made me think, well, she can't be the only one, you know? Like, she must represent a a slice of, of modern society, right? There must be huge swathes of people that have never been in a theatre. Then it turned out that she she said, I have been in the pavilion. And I don't think she meant it as a joke, like, I've never been in a theatre, but I've been in the pavilion. She just didn't kind of click that it was a theatre because she hadn't been there to see a theatre thing. She'd been to see Sydney Divine with her mum or something when she was younger. Something like that. Um, and, yeah, it was... I wasn't really taken aback by it, but I did find it interesting. I thought, it's dead easy as an actor and a theatre person. I mean, I, I, as you know, I'm obsessed with theatre. I, I really feel it's safe and reasonable to use the word obsessed. Um, and I, it's easy to forget that not everybody is. Even not all actors, by, by a long shot. Um, and then to, it's, it's healthy for me to be reminded that there are people, probably plenty of people, who not only don't go, but might never have been. Um... It doesn't have the ubiquitousness of, of TV or phones. Of course it doesn't. But as I've heard many times, it, it's it's constantly, apparently, under threat. You know, it won't survive. When telly came out, theatre will never survive. But the truth is, it keeps surviving. It keeps somehow 
you know, rising from the ashes. Um, because it does things that, that telly and movies don't do. That It's simply different. They're not the same thing. They're not trying to be the same thing. And when they do, it doesn't work. Um, I've seen so many plays. I've seen so many um, films that have been adapted from plays. And it's if they're not done well and they're not changed to suit the medium, then it's just obvious. And you kind of look at it and you think, why, why is this a film? I saw Roman Polanski's version of God of Carnage. And I just couldn't see why it was a film. There's a four-hander set in a living room. There was no need for it to be a film. Um, it's a play, and it's a, it's a thing that exists in front of a live audience. It's, it's Yasmina Reza's writing. It's terrific. Um, it's for live audiences, in that case. you know. Why would it be a film? I don't know. I watched it because I, I liked the play, liked the script, but I was kind of like, this is weird. It doesn't... You can tell, you know. It's like when you see a play that, that's come from a book or that should have been a book that hasn't really been made into a play. Um, you go, oh, this is obviously just a book. A load of people coming up to the front of the stage and talking to me and telling me a story about what happened. Not what's happening, but what happened. And you think, oh, uh, this, yeah, this should have stayed as a book because books are great. <laughs> They're not plays and plays aren't books. <laughs> what fun. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so there we go. What else did I want to tell you about? I went to see um, a student production of Vanity Fair by New College Lanarkshire on Sunday night, and I really enjoyed it. I really did. Um, what did I like about it? I liked... Um, I, I felt that people had really taken ownership over the parts that they played, which I love, because I think all too often... Um, in those situations, people are given what they've got to do, they're handed what they've to do, um, or they're not given enough to work with. You know, if they're not, so they're either over directed or they're under directed. I think might be the problem. I don't know. Um, I'm not talking about any production production specifically, but in this case, I felt like these actors were armed with what they needed, and they knew who their characters were, and they were, you know, truly uh, working at bringing those characters to life for us, you know. Um, you know, a lot of bold performances. People had made real definite decisions. I know that's that's one of those classic things that people say that's supposed to be something you can say after a show if you didn't like it. Um, but that's not what I mean. Genuinely, I mean, it, people had made bold choices as actors and really committed to them. And I love that. I do love that. Um, and I found it funny and engaging. And there were people on that stage who I thought, I can see you in a couple of years time really holding your own professionally which is so exciting um and it felt like people who really who knew what the play was and, and knew what they were were clear on what they were trying to put across which is more than can be said for many productions not just student ones especially stuff that isn't contemporary writing it's all too easy for people to read and learn the lines and not really know what exactly they're saying or not understanding the references. You know, they don't look them up, that type of thing. I just felt these these folk had really had dug in and had a good good sense of what they were trying to put on. And, you know, it had a very clear um, aesthetic as well and style. And everyone kind of very much adhered to that. So it felt like they were all in the same world, which, again, is not always the case. Um, they had everyone at the side getting changed and and doing props and things, which I wouldn't have done. Uh, just a personal choice. I just think 
I don't know. There seems to be kind of a people seem to have a problem with people go, being in the wings. We're not allowed to be in the wings anymore in a lot of shows, and I just think that's what the wings are for. The people who are on the stage, let them do the the play, and then the next people come on. I don't know. That's just me. Um, lots of hanging about at the side. Um, there's a lot of that at the moment. But anyway, I thought they were great. I thought they were great, and it was a it was well worth the time spent. I'm trying to you know support stuff and show up at stuff. Um, and see what's happening as much as possible. Although over the last couple of weeks, because I've been busy with thread, I've not seen as much as I usually like to. So, you know, that's been, I've not liked that. It was good to get to the Orimore t- today to see what was going on and to see Vanity Fair was great. I hear that Steve Coogan cancelled his uh, performance last night as Alan Partridge in Glasgow. He had uh, laryngitis. So I don't know if he's going on tonight, but I'm sure there were many um, disappointed people, eh? It's a shame because it's one. I mean, for me to go off sick is one thing, which touch wood I never have. Uh, I've never missed anything yet, performance-wise. But for Coogan to do it, it's a whole different ball game. You know, tens of thousands of people affected. It's it's interesting. Um, it's a, it must be a hell of a decision to have to take. Probably out of your hands if you've got laryngitis. To be fair, anyway. Yep, yeah, I just noticed that. And the other thing I've, I've noted, and you'll all have seen, was that Mamma Mia were having open calls in London. Um, and apparently most of the people didn't get seen. And that made me sad. That did make me sad. Um, again, my questions are usually the same. Who is it for? What's it about? Um, are they really doing open calls? Is that Does that count as an open call if people don't get seen? Probably not, in my book. Um is it open if it's only available to people who can either live in London or can get to London and can afford to get there, can afford to stay there if they need to, can afford to take the time off work? I don't I don't know if that counts. It doesn't sound very open to me. Um But it's it's probably just laziness, isn't it? They know they'll be flooded with people. They can have their pick, their mamma mia. Um Yeah. It's so, you know, this business is so tricky because, as I said, I'm completely obsessed with it, with theatre and with the workings of it and with being part of it. And yet, so much of it seems to be broken to me, you know, at one level or another. Maybe not completely dilapidated, but but not quite working um, and could be better. And I wonder, what is it that I'm in love with? Is it an ideal that doesn't exist? That either never existed or that did in some time before I was born? Or maybe in my young, very, very young days as a kid in theatre, maybe my impressions were formed at that time of what theatre was. Maybe it wasn't even like that then, but that's how I saw it through my young eyes. Maybe that's it. I often wonder if it's that. Um, I was first professionally on stage when I was nine years old and I think whatever I thought that was that show those people that were in it the way it worked that became my blueprint for what theatre was supposed to be as far as I could see there weren't any problems of course you're nine you don't you know I'm sure that all the the adult cast were having a good old moan about overtime and things weren't being done properly and it should be this way and it should be that way as far as I was concerned, it was a big playground. It was the best thing ever, and maybe I've maybe I've kept 
that idealistic view in my mind and now try and measure things against that yardstick and, and find them find them wanting. Things fall short all the time. Um, but I still seem to hold an ideal in my head that I look to. And sometimes things come close, you know. I'm very much looking forward to starting on the stamping ground, which has just been announced. The cast list has just been announced for that. Um, the new musical with the songs of Runrig and uh, book by Morna Young and directed by my great pal Luke Kernan. I'm looking forward to starting on that. And that does feel like it's going to be um, a sort of a, a bit of a big machine in, in a way. Not a machine in the sense that, you know, it's like go stand over there and then turn slightly to the left. But a big production, you know, with, with high production values and, and lots going on and all departments running at full pelt. And I'm looking forward to that because it's, it's been a while since I was in that that sort of space. Um, sometimes working at the Lyceum has been on some, to some degree that kind of scale. Certainly working on the James plays was, you know. But I've done a lot of smaller stuff recently, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know. Bring your own trousers. That would be the that might be the name for uh, my theatre company. Bring your own trousers presents a pay what you can production. <laughs> Listen, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, every every production's its own thing. And one of the things I, I love the most is the seat of your pants element of it of just going, right, okay, this is we have to make this work somehow. Um but there's a balance to be struck, isn't there, between that and you know, proper working practices, professionalism, safety. And to balance, I think we often get it wrong. Either we go too far in the direction of um, safety and rules and regulation and, you know, red tape, or we miss the mark completely and, you know, you're holding up the set and catching a drip in a bucket as you're walking on stage, just for a, for a crude example. So I... I feel like I sound quite pensive today. I feel quite pensive. Um, I've got a show tonight, Thread, our second show. And it's nice to, it's been nice to finally get it on its, in front of an audience, I wouldn't say on its feet, but in front of an audience because, you know, it's it was quite a stressful couple of weeks and not a lot of time to put together such an ambitious show. Um, but finally getting in front of an audience last night let me kind of start to actually play with it a wee bit. Um, and I'm now able to have a bit of fun with it. I play an old guy in this one, which is fun. Um, and there's a bit of room for me to, you know, add lib a wee bit. I'm playing Uncle Frank, basically. If you know who I'm talking about, then welcome. Um, and if you don't, follow me on social media. It's Bridal Hingway, B-R-I-D-O-H-I-N-G-W-Y. Um, I'm basically playing Uncle Frank in this show, and it's a lot of fun. And then I get to, you know, kind of make some stuff up and play the accordion and just... Yeah, now that we're now that we're up and open, I I do feel I can kind of play with things a wee bit more. So that's fun. That's fun. A couple of messages on Twitter actually. I put a tweet out um, about a couple of things. Where is it now? I think I asked. What did I ask? I see, so much goes on in Twitter, and then the um, the stamping ground got announced. So all my replies are about that recently. Aha, so I tweeted, what's great about the arts right now and what needs to change? Reply below. So let's see. I've got a couple of 
interesting replies here. Me coming on your show needs to change ASAP. Lewis Gribbon. I don't know who you are, Lewis. An actor. I've definitely seen your face before. What's this picture of you? You're in something. At a premiere of something. I don't know who you are. Give, give me a shout. Email me, please. Um, Brian at puttingittogethercast.com uh, Right. And what was the other? It was a good reply here. The theory, this is from Nicholas Stevens, one of the, a friend of the podcast. The theory that if a show doesn't go to London, it's somehow not as good as those that do. Why is regional theatre never classed as important in its own right? Why are only London audiences important? It's a great one. It's a great one. We do see it as a some somewhat pinnacle, don't we, of our business. Or some do. Um, and maybe audiences do. I don't know. Something about those famous three words, West End transfer. And yet, you know, the things that are in the West End usually are um, highly commercial and and quite, well, they have to be quite populist, don't they? They have to appeal, they have to have broad appeal because they have to sell tickets. And then the stuff that isn't in the West End is perhaps less under pressure to sell tickets. Maybe there's public funding involved um, and maybe it's more niche. And maybe it can afford to be more niche. So, probably from the outside, from you know a general populist kind of a point of view, the West End makes sense to be a pinnacle because that's where the popular things are. So it's like, oh, you know, it's like TV. People often say to me things like, why don't you do your characters on TV? Because as far as people are concerned, that's the pinnacle. That's where the best stuff is. And it's not where the best stuff is. It's where the popular stuff is. And it's where the stuff that has the broadest appeal can be. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing good on TV by a long shot. Of course I'm not, right? Um, but what we've probably most of us have grown up with is a sense pre-social media that the end point, the goal is in theatre, it's the West End or Broadway and in um, other art forms often it's TV. Um, you know, acting, let's say, other than theatre, getting on TV or getting in the movies. Um, and certainly with comedy, if I can talk about comedy for a minute, it feels like the idea is, you know, do stand-up or do Edinburgh Fringe, that type of thing. But ultimately what you want is to do a sitcom on the BBC or something like that or HBO. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't want a sitcom on HBO? But um, it's we grew up with the idea that that's, that's an end goal. And the landscape has definitely changed. Definitely changed. Um, social media has changed it completely. The The level of creative control you have if you're on social media doing comedy is unprecedented. And there's no there's nowhere else that you can really get that. But it doesn't have the mass appeal that often TV does, or at least did historically. I mean, you could argue that you might get bigger audiences on TikTok now than you would on the BBC. Um, for many people that's definitely true um, I don't know I don't know I just feel wary of saying you know of, of seeming to badmouth comic stuff that goes on TV because often um, it's amazing and the thing about it is that in many cases what happens with it is it gets nurtured talent gets nurtured and looked after and developed and people get help and 
um, encouragement and education and um, to to develop something that that they brought to the table. Now that that is wonderful, and that should be happening. And in some cases, it is. That's what we don't have in social media. It's you you do your thing, and you know either do it or you don't. That's kind of the end of the thing, the end of the story. Whereas with TV, if you got a pilot, you know, on a network, then one hopes that you're going to be looked after by people with a lot more experience. You're going to be helped to write. You're going to be helped with casting and directing and every other department. Um, and I feel like there are some channels and networks that do that better than others. I'll say that. Um, but I won't go any further than that <laughs> on that particular one. Anyway, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the West End. That's what I'm talking about. The West End's wonderful. And I've seen some of the most brilliant stuff in the West End and Broadway. Of course I have. But the other side of that is, of course, that it has to have broad appeal. It has to have mass appeal. Um, it's going to sell appealing to the tourist market, which is a different thing again. Um, and some of the stuff you get the opportunity to do not in the West End simply doesn't have that and is the better for it. You know, there are plenty, plenty things I've been in that absolutely wouldn't have any place on the West End and that is fine and I think that's what Nicola alludes to here is that um, not enough people I think perhaps are, are okay with that it's it's somehow a disappointment if something isn't bound for the West End on some maybe very subtle level we're not saying oh what a shame or yeah well it won't make it to the West End so it's not worth my time no one's saying that out loud usually but there is an inbuilt kind of feeling of that in some circles and it's interesting but what actor or writer or, or creative among us wouldn't want to have their show in the West End it's prestigious and that's where the audiences are and that's where the budgets for you know wonderful design and and um, you know what's the word I'm looking for production values if you want to call it that so it's of course we 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 look to it and we hope that one day our shows will be there. But one has to suspect it's it's not everything. It's not the be all and end all. And when, when we speak to people who work in the West End, usually they've got as many gripes as we do. <laughs> they've just got different gripes. But isn't that true about life, you know? It's like, oh if only we could if only we could live in the south of France. Well, you know what I mean. You go to South of France, you talk to people that moved there and they'll say, ah, yeah, but the thing is, you can't get the English papers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Nothing's all it's cracked up to be, really, is it? And i tell you why I think that is. I think that's because everything that we crack up to be a thing is something that's outside of ourselves, somewhere in the future, some distant point that we have to get to later. And that fails to take into account the fact that the only time is now. That's what it is. For me, for me, that's what it is. Um, some sense that tomorrow, you know, or when the show goes on tour or when it goes into the West End, then, then we'll really be living the life. But the life is now. It is now. For me, life is right now in this little booth talking to you. It's now. Very unequivocally. Can't be denied. It's about the only thing you can't argue with, is what's actually happening in this present moment. Not what you think's happening, not the argument that you might be having in your head with an imagined version of someone, but what's literally happening right now, 
you know can't you can't argue with that what your experience is right now in front of you um everything else is just is just us thinking about things basically isn't it so any sense of me doing a show in the west end is is nothing more than me thinking in my imagination about me doing a show in the west end and guess what i'm imagining it to be fantastic and i'm imagining that i'll be endlessly happy <laughs> because i'm there in that dream scenario but i'll still be me won't i if and when i go there i'll still be me i'll still have my same ups and downs same background same family it'll still get to tuesday and i'll go oh i've got to do a podcast <laughs> that's the the most constant thing i've had in my life for the last five years is is you it's talking to you Every Tuesday I say, oh yeah, podcast. Or if not, if not before. But at the very latest at Tuesday night I say, oh, better get an episode out. And I always have. But I'm always me, you know. And it's always now. So there you go. What else did I want to tell you about? I think I had one more wee thing on my list. What was it? I wrote down praise for understudies. I don't know what made me think that. I suppose there's a lot of talk about understudies at the moment, isn't there? Um, and, you know, more than ever, people are, um, people can be taken ill at the last minute, things change. And I think we're, we're giving a bit more space to people who aren't well, rather than this Doctor Theatre thing of, right, just on you go, the show must go on. I think we've got slightly more realistic Maybe not in every uh, corner of our industry, but in some cases we have been more real realistic about if someone's ill, they're ill. Um, and not in a sad way, but people are replaceable. It's not the end of the world if a show stops or if someone takes over. So understudies who are hired to do that job, not only, not only are they doing fantastic work and against huge odds and, you know, it's brilliant and highly commendable um, but often what we're looking at now is people understudying who weren't hired as understudies who have to step up at the last minute for whatever reason and it's all quite kind of there's a romantic element to it isn't there where you think oh someone running across town they did a they did the matinee at wicked they were alphabet in the afternoon and then they were in flipping and juliet at night or whatever they were in um, and they hadn't been in either show for 17 years, but they remembered every word. Oh, wonderful. Um, and those are the rare occasions, and it does seem to be happening. Um, but even in our very own Oren Moore, people are walking on with a couple hours notice because things keep happening. Because of the, the times we live in, as, as that saying goes. It's amazing. And, of course, more should be done to guarantee that these things are covered. Uh, further in advance and that we have systems in place so that people can step in in a non-stressful way that's the ideal isn't it that there are always enough understudies to cover most eventualities and that people are paid and they know the parts already and it would be next to no stress for them to stick the costume on and get out there but the reality is that that's not usually the case is it um not in not in our line of work, not in Scottish theatre anyway, anywhere outside of the West End. And even then, who knows? But I just wanted to take a moment to kind of show some 
appreciation for those people in many situations, whether they're hired understudies, whether they're standbys, or whether they're just last-minute phone calls, those people that have stepped up, because you're brilliant. You're brilliant. And, you know, if you don't, then the show goes off, and whilst that it's not the end of the world, it's a beautiful thing when the show can go on, because people, you know, pull together or show up or make it work somehow. There's a great feeling in that, and that's one of the things that I hope we never lose from from theatre, is that feeling of, right, well, we've We'll figure something out and we'll get on there. I love that. It's not a way to start out. It's not an intention to start out with at the beginning of a rehearsal process. What you're trying to do is cover everything so that we don't need to do that. Right? But unexpected things happen and then we do have that pulling together feeling. And there's nothing like it. It's magic. It's magic. Do you know what? I think that's about all from me this week. Um... I'll tell you about next week's play or more. It's uh, it's starring Hannah Jarrett Scott, directed by Isla Cowan. And the name of it escapes me, but I'll have it in just a second. It's called, here it is, All Right Sunshine, by... Oh, it's by... Sorry, Isla Cowan wrote it. It's been directed by Joanna Bowman. And it's a one-woman play with Hannah Jarrett Scott. How exciting. I mean, Hannah Jarrett's one of our top talents in this country. I really believe that. It says, I'm going to read to you about this play. It's like the sun casts a spell, some hypnotic solar shite, and suddenly ordinary people do terrible things. As PC Nikki McCready responds to a mass brawl on the meadows, it's not just the Neds she has to worry about. In the aftermath of violence and suspicion, Nikki discovers she might not be the person she thinks she is. All right, Sunshine explores gender, power, and the politics of public space. Sounds terrific. I know that Isla's amazing. Um, I was very impressed with Joanna Bowman's work on The Metamorphosis Unplugged. And I have nothing but good things to say about the amazing Hannah Jarrett Scott. It's next week at Play a Pie and a Pint. It's Monday the 30th of May to Saturday the 4th of June. And your price, uh, ticket price includes your pie and your pint. So how about that? That's all from me. So I look forward to speaking to you next week. I hope that this episode has been some use to you has triggered something, has made you think, has um, given you a wee rest, a bit of respite, whatever it is, I hope it's useful. And I hope you'll come back and join me next week for a time with a guest. And if you're interested, there are over 260 episodes back in that archive you can look at any time, they're completely free. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do it by going to puttingittogethercast.com and clicking on the yellow donate button. puttingittogethercast.com and click on donate. It's dead easy and it makes a massive difference. So, that's all from me. I'll just say what I always say. Cheerio now.